0: It's in the history, it's in the air. Burt Williams met George Walker there. It's in the air.
1: Hello and welcome to episode five of the Who Cares Anyway podcast. My guest on this episode is Laura Allen and I'll begin by reading the bio from her website. Laura Allen's work has its roots in experimental performance, when, at the age of 18, she dropped out of high school and formed the band Man Witch in Cincinnati. Later, she moved to San Francisco, where she played and recorded with numerous bands, including Heavenly Ten Stems, Secret Chiefs 3, Carolina Rainbow, and Ragtime Germs. During that time, she developed a visual art practice that resulted in receiving an MFA in painting from Yale—not Yale, Yale—where Yale, her work took on dimensions of text, performance, and painting. And I'll mispronounce some of these names, but shows include the Museo de Bellas Artes in uh, Cuba for the Havana Biennial, Queens Museum, New York, CAC in Cincinnati, MOCA, Cleveland, San Francisco City Hall, Eastern State Penitentiary, Brooklyn Museum, and SF MOMA. Now, I first interviewed Laura Allen back in 2017 for the book, and uh, a lot of that material definitely did make its way into the book in chapters on Carolina and elsewhere. But there was a lot else in that interview that was interesting, despite being outside the scope of the book. And so when I reached out to her to do this podcast interview... It was really more with, with that stuff in mind. In other words, not to rehash what we already talked about, particularly the uh, controversy surrounding the Heavenly Ten Stems and the so-called yellow paint incident. Not to rehash any of that, but really to hear more about her experiences both before moving to San Francisco and then after moving on from the uh, scene talked about in the book. So after she left Carolina in 1994 and after the Heavenly Ten Stems dissolved around that same time. That said, we certainly do connect things back to her time in San Francisco, uh, particularly the early 90s, but also late 90s after she uh, left the aforementioned bands. So cover a lot of ground. Without any further ado, though, I'll go ahead and get out of the way and let us get on with the interview. So thank you again to Laura Allen, and I hope you enjoy. To begin... I thought you had an interesting story of, uh, that was kind of representative in a certain way, but also unique uh, in terms of like what led you out to San Francisco. And I believe you spent time in Minneapolis and Ohio in one order or the other, and I can't quite sure. remember though.:
0: Sure. So so I was, in, I was born in Cincinnati and I lived there till I was 18. And I ended up moving to Minneapolis, but I would say in Cincinnati that definitely around the time of being um, a teenager, you know, sort of into adulthood, like 17, 18, uh, I, I branched in, out musically and found people who were really, really um into underground music and into, but beyond that, I mean, yeah, there were, I was introduced to things like the butthole surfers, the fall, Jonathan Richmond, things like that, you know, a song by the Mekons or the swans or the birthday party, all that kind of stuff. So that was really a revelation. But then, then it was, it was this person, uh, his name's David Lewis and he's a real character and we were in a band together he had a show on waif which was the independent radio station and it was called art damage and on art damage and he had it with dan williams and they had a band called the 11000 switches and david was really in and is he's he's, how do I explain David Lewis? It's really hard to explain, but anyway, he introduced me to so much music. We were in a band together and he did, he was, he was really into, he's the absolutely by far the most eclectic musical, um, musicologist I've ever met and, and continues to be and although at the same time he's a scholar of a certain kind of classical music at this point but that that's beyond what what his influence was on me at the time and he would play things for me like he was a person who played for me at at like as a teenager patty waters for example and he played he used to work with teddy and the frat girls i think they were originally known as sheer magnum they were originally known as sheer Magma, but he would tell me stories about Cookie Mould the lead singer of that band and I was really enamored with her and I was I was also introduced to Teenage Jesus and the Jerks through him and he was a huge and probably still is a huge Lydia Lunch fan and just introduced me to a lot of really amazing music an artist that I may not now Lydia Lynch would fit into the whole, you know, category that I mentioned before, like birthday party or the fall or something like that. But he also, I, I think it was also, I mean, I hate to say it, but it was also female artists um, that that I was introduced at that time that really blew my mind. And, uh, so he would be playing, so he had this art damage show in at wave and they would play thing. I mean, anything went, they'd play easy listening, religious pill, you know, they would be, be skipping around all these genres and they would play anything. I mean, I could go on the show and I brought records and could play what I wanted to with them. And my friend, Andrew Rush, who was in San Francisco at the time. And was in the Wandering Stars. He he used to do cut ups at home, and they would play them there. And you know he uh, he went under the name Healing Service. So it was just really this community of I I would have to say weirdos. Other than I mean, Andrew had come out of being a born again Christian. Uh, I was at the point where I had come out of you know some serious institutional um, institutionalized, um, indoctrinization into this kind of world, this, this sort of corporate slash medical world. And, uh, David, you know, was, had a lot of, had a lot of things going on in his life and and times, but then, so so all these these were my friends and then David and I were in a band together. So I started a band before David, before actually I was really close to David. I started a band that was more in the sort of fall and, and, in post-punk and no wave, no wave genre with Bill Weber. Um, and he, he, myself, Bill, Bill William plays and play, has since gone on to play with, Gigi allen and others a- anyway chrome cranks and so so he and i were in a, started a band and we were with this guy darius smith and and pete aaron who who um anyway this isn't this is cincinnati this isn't this is well, we, no, we, a, a yeah. we had a band called manwich we had a band called manwich and manwich Fortunately, now Pete was the first bass player, but he dropped out. We got this guy named Joel. Bill joined the or uh, David Lewis joined the band. My friend Wendy, my dear friend Wendy Darst, at the time joined the band played farfisa. Heather Prescott. We got two drummers. So, and we were improvisation, and it was a mess. And it was it was it, I think at times at its best, it was a cacophony of super weirdness, and at its worst, it was annoying and and just like. Oh my God! When are they going to stop? But we we were experimental and that, so that was my beginning of performing. So it was just improvising, getting up, grabbing a mic, and just singing or talking or doing whatever. So so it was really it was really quick. There was Cincinnati. There wasn't a lot that's going on. So when the Butthole Surfers came to town, we opened for them. When Pussy Galore came to town, we played with them. You know, any band that was in that ilk, we would play with them because there really wasn't a lot of other it wasn't much in town. There were other bands where BPA and human zoo and stuff like that, but we were one of very few experimental or more, more in that post-punk. So it was strange because when I was around 18, I saw, so I played in front of hundreds of people and, you know, I would meet people and they would always talk to me about the band. And I, I thought it was I was very, again, I had just gotten out of being in some pretty serious situations psychologically. I found it potentially dangerous for me to get so much attention. And I thought that I could, it would ruin me to be, it would make me really egotistical and that that um, I needed to get away. And I mean, this is like, it was kind of fucked up. So I was, yeah, I was, I was scared. I was scared of in a way my own ideas of myself or whatever image I had of myself getting away from me and turning into, Oh, that's a girl that, or that screams in the band or that never faces the audience or blah, 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 blah. And so I moved to Minneapolis. And what was strange to me there was, a lack of experimental, subversive music. Everybody was either like, "Oh, I I prefer Who's Who do, or I prefer The Replacements," <laughs> and that conversation seemed really, you know, I'd seen both of them, and I was like, "Yeah, hey, you know, whatever." And and I, it wasn't as as like um, creative as something like the Butthole Surfers, to in my mind, or as. As raunchy as "pussy galore," or you know, on and on. So, so going to Minneapolis was an eye-opening experience, and at the same time, I said, "Oh my god!" I dropped out of college. I did a lot of drugs really young. My brain is going to suffer. So, I went to community college, and I tried to like I tried to read books and study art. You know, I was I was reading books on Marcel Duchamp, or I was I was looking at 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 um, classical, I was studying classical music. I mean, I was was trying whatever I could. I mean, to survive, I thought, I thought, shit, I'm in this world alone. I got to figure this out. I got a brain, whatever. And so I lived alone in in Minneapolis and there was a direness to it because, you know, I was 20 or whatever. and, And my friends and such were in bands that were, again, kind of in the ilk that, that I felt like I was moving away from, I wasn't, or or that I wasn't really that into the kind of like bass guitar drums. And so, so there was one band that was really that I loved were the cows in Minneapolis. And that was as
2: weird as it got there at the time were the cows. So, okay. So I was in Minneapolis
0: and I was working at record stores. So I w- was listening to getting really obscure records like soundtracks. And there was I worked for this guy. Was, he was so sweet. I was at the uptown seeing some generic band. And this guy sat down next to me and was like, hey, can I buy you a drink? And and I was there by myself. I'm like, sure. And and I get a drink and he's like, so what what's your favorite music? And I said, "I said, well, Jelly Roll Morton." And he's like, "Do you want a job?" So I got a job at a record store from this from this guy Jaime, who had at the time he was in this record store Jaime and Hazens in Minneapolis. And you know, that's a great job as it, as someone who needed a job, I guess, and also just collecting records and books because it was records and books. And it went from Jaime's and Hazen's to just Jaime's. And it was attached to Ingmar Lee's, which was a 78 store. So I was in a very fortunate situation with this with Jaime, who was very generous with me and you know, gave me a lot of records, let me take books home. And I was I was just constantly listening to records and looking at he he liked those um 40s and 50s kind of sci-fi books. Especially the ones like you turn the cover over and there's a different cover on the back. So I'm surrounded by all these amaz- amazing images, he was a jazz bow. So there was a lot of I was exposed to a lot. You know, hence Jelly Roll Morton. Oh, do you want a job? And getting so 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 I was getting exposed to a lot of different kind of music, a lot of female vocalists that were I was really into um, that I hadn't heard before. And other vocalists, international music, but soundtracks, soundtracks was a big deal. And then just obscurities, weird organ records or things with goofy covers. And we would go thrift shopping and find things. So that was that was a great experience. But Andrew Rush came to visit in San Francisco and he um, was like, you got to get out of here and he was going to Romania and said you got to sublet my apartment and you have to move to San Francisco. And I took a bus cuz he and I were taking a bus just I was going there to visit him and before I even got there I decided I was going to move there and in 3 months I ended up figuring out a way to get myself there and get the you know my records and stuff there. So yeah that was that was a feat, and uh, I moved to San Francisco then. So that was the trajectory, of, or that was how I got to San Francisco and where my head was, you know. Because in Minneapolis, I was, I was, I was dead in the water. No one gave a shit about me being a singer or being a musician or being anything. I mean, in fact, yeah, yeah, it was not, and and that was kind of a big blow you know from going to this this place where I was accepted and, and lauded and then being kind of like who are you who the fuck are you you know and so San Francisco was was great because it really it has a darkness the fog moving in but it also has this incredible beauty of living in a national park feeling it was cheap
2: it was um just shockful of subversive energy and people
0: and bands. And so I went to the sixth street rendezvous. It was open for two seconds Mm -hmm. at that time. And I think I was seeing tragic mulatto and Grux and, and Christina, his girlfriend at the time came up to me and talked to me. And then I became friends with Grux and was telling him about organ records, you know, oh, I'm really into organ records and band organs. And he said, I want to introduce you to my friend Robert. And Robert Heilbooth. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that got, that, that was a whole nother, whole nother world. But Robert Heilbooth, who was in his 70s at the time and had, had escaped Nazi Germany and had, Built a band organ, built a pipe organ. Everything in his house was handmade, and he was a piano tuner by trade, but a composer and a real—I mean, he was Mister Natural come to life. You would go to his house, and he would smell you before you came in, (laughs) and he would just—he would just say, "Shit!" You know, he—he knew—he knew knew crumb comics. He—he liked them, so I think he—he also played it up. But he had that long beard and. He was a he was a real um, I would say, you know, one of my I, I felt like he was one of the dearest people that I'd known and and kept me kept my feet grounded in a kind of reality that I think would have been I would have been hard pressed to have found from anyone else and anywhere else.
1: I'm glad you mentioned him. You know, there are all. Uh, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Andrew Rush as well. Andrew Rush's name mm-hmm. does uh, does appear. Uh, uh, Robert Halbooth, I'm realizing, doesn't. There's all these things. No, no matter. Oh, uh, Robert
0: doesn't. Oh, my uh,
1: gosh, no, no, yet. I know, I know that. Well, no, 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 know, no, no. That's there, the there, well. There's all these. There's always. Uh, he always omissions.
0: said, "I don't want groupies." He always. He <laughs> 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 was hilarious f- that way. When, like I don't want anybody. You know, he was... Anyway, sorry, go ahead.
1: Was he still performing uh, at He never performed. He
0: never performed. performed. His performances were going to the store and talking to the manager. I mean, he didn't know. No, no, no. And he rarely invited people over. He didn't... No. He was not an easy person to get to know at all. He would say, I don't want
2: groupies.
0: And uh, he wasn't wrong in a way. You know, he didn't want... Well, it's... Funny to think about groupies of a person who writes compositions for band organs and makes instruments, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, he he selected who he wanted to be around and there was kind of a, you, it was, it was on his terms and um, yeah, you had to pass the smell test to be around Robert. No, he never performed. I mean, he only had, his job as a piano tuner and um, getting by and his band organ and he didn't even make recordings until right before his death. I have cassette tapes of them. He wouldn't allow it. And then finally he met somebody who recorded and talked him into it. And, you know, he could kind of be coaxed and persuaded, but it was all under his terms. I think that now there's a video on, youtube someone showed me years back that he there's actually a short video but there's not much about robert in the stratosphere because and he wanted it that way he used to be say beethoven's dead or no he used to tell me rembrandt is dead let him be dead (laughs) and it wasn't that he didn't like rembrandt this wasn't it was just a philosophy about uh life and death and 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 i i think also people being overly dramatic about who they like and love and admire and what that does to the person who they're admiring too
1: yes but when when you first mentioned uh introducing you to my friend who plays organ i thought i thought you were going to say his name was anton but uh with Grux. but uh uh, anton LaVey, but uh because that that's another uh organ player that grux was friends with uh,
0: yeah and Robert think, knew him and Robert, they knew okay. each other yeah I mean okay. it's a small it's a small world and in, in the organ, you know eccentric <laughs>
1: yeah. in I San mean, Francisco that's yeah I mean it's bigger in San Francisco than in other places it would basically be non-existent but uh yeah septuagenarian, uh eccentric organ uh, <laughs> uh, Oregon, uh keyboard uh, esoteric uh yeah. anyway so i imagine there's so- one in
0: cincinnati there was one in cincinnati i mean there were oh, yeah. there's there was like one in every town. maybe no i mean there was probably there there are probably a 100 you know or 200 or 300 i that's one of the things i think about who are those people going to be but, but anyway yeah. Go ahead. What was your
1: well, question? Well, uh, so I didn't, so that, uh, w- when we first talked, so I, I recalled, uh, ju- from what you were saying just now, I remembered some of the names, like Man, which I would not have been able to uh, <laughs> remember it off the top of my head, but I didn't know quite as much, uh, you hadn't told me quite as much about that time in Minneapolis, but, and that you were already into a lot of this uh, different kind of music, and I'm thinking here, you um, by the time, you know, if you get to San Francisco and you start meeting people like Grux and they're talking about organ records, what it was like to to feel like, uh, you know, you must have felt like, mm. wow, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'm here, I'm meeting people like this or I'm like, I'm looking in a mirror or not looking in a mirror, but meeting people mm-hmm. who have these interests. And um, did it surprise you or did it feel kind of like what you expected as far as being able to come across all these, you know? Things that yeah. I, I think, that, and the the other reminder yeah. that I, I give myself, or you know, maybe listeners, is that you know that this stuff was pretty hard to come across at the time. Absolutely, yeah.
0: If you weren't an obscurant, you know, you weren't going to know this stuff, and it was also not popular. You know, if it was you, in here's the thing, you I think in a way you had to have an uh, you had to genuinely like it. I, I I think that, or why else would you listen to it? You, and so, so oh, it made me think about Dr. Demento. You know, growing up as a kid, I heard I heard Dr. Demento shows on the radio, and it's like, what kind of amount of glee did you get from Dr. Demento? Or also Spike Jones, and and that kind of chaotic play. Anyway, so so or even you know you could say something like Edgar Verisi or something like in a more artful way, but that's more educated. I'm talking about like popular,
2: lowbrow. So so anyway, um when I met, I was conflicted.
0: And this is this is strange because first of all. I hadn't been around so many obsessive record collectors. <laughs> I knew, I knew David Lewis and he was, he wasn't a record collector. He was, he's a different animal and there's no one like him. And, you know, I call, oh his name is actually one time I called him uncle Dave and it's, it's stuck. So he, he goes by uncle Dave now, but anyway, he, he, was different and but this was this was um and Andrew Rush was a collector too but I didn't look at him that way and he also collected a lot of stuff he used to make fun and kind of torture me a little because some of the stuff I wasn't into and I could be really honest with him and we would just crack up and it was really it was really fun but when I started
2: seeing a kind of like like a strange sort of bartering and a kind of
0: like obsessive and almost ego-driven kind of thing, it weirded me out a little bit. And I don't know how to um, talk about this without sounding like accusatory, judgmental, anything like that. And it uh, was also reflective of myself because I also felt like there was something really personal happening because when I was in Minneapolis collecting weird records, I didn't know anybody doing that. And so it felt like, wow, nobody else is doing, I mean, okay, granted here goes, here goes like, you know, I'm not going to break my arm, pat myself on the back, but I thought like nobody's into this stuff. And it felt like saving something that was lost or that might be lost or that no one cared about. You know, like this stuffed animal that's that's like uh-huh. half ripped and you like find it on the street and you're like I'm going to love you forever. So, so this was this was this was a little strange. I also felt like I was doing a job that really didn't need to be done. So, I still continued to collect records, but I also had it was more like I couldn't always tell you names. And I couldn't always tell you, I could never tell you serial numbers of 78s, but I could, but, but it was like, a. it was still like more of a, it was actually more of a spirit. It was a spirit that, that I was after, uh, hence the, the jelly roll Morton, you know, there was a spirit when I first heard that I was, I knew something I didn't know before. And it was about a spirit that existed. So then meeting people, I, I I just wasn't sure that it was necessarily aligned in the same way. And it was it was mostly, if not all, guys, which was which is cool. I mean, I I I, I like them, but I think that their approach was just it was just different. And and um, it was fun. It was really fun to meet erudite collectors and have them they do know the serial numbers and they do and they can rattle off every player on the record and do all that but that just to me got into a different sort of realm than the spirit of what had happened on in the sound so okay so that's a complicated answer but hopefully in there is some kind of you can pan out you know some kind of like relationship to what it was like to sharing that, that with, and, and, and I loved sharing it with people. It wasn't that I didn't like to share it. It was just, it was just in a different kind of way of exchange and, um, and where the focus was. Um, So it's really, I mean, meeting that level of collector, it's, it's really something that 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 people that it's it's profound to meet people who are have one copy of something like a 78 that no longer there's no other known copies
1: guessing this by the reference to the to tragic mulatto and sixth street rendezvous i'm putting that around 89
0: 89? no 91 this was yeah it had closed the Uh um sixth street rendezvous and i don't know what by what grace of god that opened for for like a month or something or maybe it was longer but yeah it reopened and then it closed you know that was that's the sketchiest of the downtown it's there's sketchier places in the tenderloin for sure but that was the sketchiest block and yeah it was just open for a few shows or uh, i i don't remember but
1: right yeah, yeah. i can't or quite a year, place it a of years. yeah it's not there were a uh, rough trade was located there uh from about 82 to oh, i don't know how f- far into the 80s but not not there but like within a couple of blocks on 6th Street. So again, um for anyone who's been there, you can picture it but if you haven't. And for me it was culture it was not just culture shock, it was system shock sort of. It was very Oh yeah. it very really different. is
2: that
0: kind of all of a sudden the circus has come to town. You're just like in the middle of it in one block. It's was so bizarre. Tulane is there.
2: Right. Yeah. And
0: and then and then it's probably just SRL hotels and dive bars that, that you may or may not live. If you, not to, you know, put too fine a point on it, but it was, it
2: was definitely a, a, a place where you're like, um, just Julia, just, just,
0: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Not going into too far of the corner of the alley by yourself.
1: Yeah. Like, yeah. And there was a building, I don't know if it was like that in the early 90s, but there was a building that had like bathtubs on the wall or.
0: Oh yeah. Oh uh, yeah. That was on Mission Street. Yeah. On Mission? The, something Sixth like mission, that. Sixth and
1: Mission maybe? Um, I remember,
0: maybe. Yeah. yeah. With the stuff coming out and the arms and legs coming out of the windows and the furniture coming out of the windows. Right.
1: Yeah, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't yeah. bathtubs. It was just a very different, um, um, again, I, I was coming straight from North Carolina, so maybe Minneapolis, I don't know how Minneapolis and Cincinnati would compare at the time, maybe Minneapolis a little bigger than Cincinnati, but, um, either way, San There's, Francisco is still pretty different, I imagine.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it, it's an international city, but it's also the weather. And so it's mo- mostly though, even more as the history, I mean, San Francisco has the, it's, the Barbary Coast, the Gold Rush—it has that whole incredible history. And living in New York now, I see what diversity actually is. But being in San Francisco, it did feel more diverse than Minneapolis at that time, for sure.
1: Yeah, and um, as far as the, the bands, uh, was Carolina? Uh, that was that the first one that you uh, took part in? Um, I should know this. I
0: think so. But was. Yeah. If I remember correctly, I think it was. And it happened pretty quickly. And it happened almost seamlessly. I don't think everybody was thrilled when I showed up. And Grux introduced me as, I don't know, I was going to play sound effects or something. And uh, that was not necessarily needed or wanted and then someone quit the band and then i took over as the bass player which was also you know maybe subpar for what other band members wanted but once i started singing that that's when i think there was there was an appreciation for what i had to offer or we'll call it singing
1: trying to picture kind of maybe something that is too general to picture but let's say a certain time when there's a kind of a time period in early 90s when there's kind of a, a feeding frenzy or there's maybe like a lot more ambition creeping into to underground music but but here at the same time you know um, a lot of people who you know in your circle and in yourself included are looking to these completely different Times and places, you know, whether it was Southeast Asian pop music or um, Jelly Roll Morton or or whatever, or Bert Uh,
0: Backrack,
2: yeah, yeah.
1: Very, you know, in a lot of ways, was very out of step, maybe ahead of its time in being out of step.
2: Um, Well, well, well,
0: yeah. I mean, I think that that it was, you know, the intention. I think the intention with these bands, everything was was subversive it definitely wasn't and i i'm not going to say that that kurt cobain saying everyone is gay and wearing a dress and lipstick wasn't subvers- subversive because it was it just so happens that they struck a um they 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 hit on something a pulse in popular and popular so whatever they were influenced by or listening to was probably much more mainstream than what we ever listened. I mean, right or wrong, it was more, you know, traditional hard rock, punk rock, post punk, etc. And I really doubt they were listening to like kids organ records seriously <laughs> and using that for inspiration for their vocals. Or or um, you know, channeling and anyway you get the idea so so there was a there was a kind of like creativity that was going on that I don't think I, I don't think really involved like just a music scene I think that if you if you take some most of the bands were a lot of like you know we go back we talked about this like living theater tradition and you could say in and in, indefinitely camp whether or not that was, you know, camp and the camp version of
2: failed seriousness, or the, or in, just just artifice and and esoteric private code, but but there was a lot of that kind of more immersive experiential. Um, output and the outliers like for example Harry Parch
0: who's somebody who who was in San Francisco and is somebody who I've been thinking a lot about you know that would have been an example of a musician and an example of this corporeal experience we'll say and that is much more resonant for that time period and what people were were just excited by you know a guitar hook is exciting but we just needed a little more or 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 something different and and it had to it had to feel chaotic and again esoteric so so how would that you know that doesn't have you know sure you know grunge chaos i guess but those records are really put together you know they're really well produced it's it's a it's a different animal it really is
1: yeah yeah and um i just found it kind of interesting that uh kind of think looking back on that that era when let's say carolina was in full swing and and Mm -hmm. these spinoffs um or associated groups like job's daughters and were, were happening um yeah. in media spotlight you know time magazine is doing these articles about about grunge uh, just up you know up the coast in, in seattle and it's just a very not not to say that there weren't um mainstreamish type things happening in in san francisco I have to keep in mind this is kind of a little enclave or a little scene but but it's definitely oh how i guess if you wanted to talk about people who had ambitions towards kind of making it big they would not be choosing um some of the directions that that a lot of you all were taking <laughs> And it was definitely <laughs> just a just a different a different motivation but you also brought up something that i, I did
0: absolutely kind of
1: remember about uh you know when we first talked it was 2017 it was summer 2017 and i you know still relatively early on in the the research so i did manage to like to some other people and learn more about There's my dog making noise about the 70s and, and you know you know angels of light and things that fed into tuxedo moon and then the the influence that that they had is almost kind of like mentors to other bands or you know whether it was Min- minimal man or factory and then eventually you have someone like grux is witnessing some of that firsthand catching the tail end of some of these performers who were um Simon Reynolds referred to it as dark cabaret, but this this tradition mm-hmm. that, that was kind of, uh, you know, unfolding in parallel with, kind of mixed together with punk in the late 70s. But in another sense, it's its own kind of tradition that is more theater immersive. And that is something that is a San Francisco thing. And one thing that would come up in, in interviews or, or just as I would be thinking about this stuff is, you know, how much of this is a particular tradition that you, that one can trace versus this is San Francisco, this place that attracts people looking for something different or getting away or going West. And it's kind of chicken or egg. I don't, I don't think uh, there's one specific answer, but you know, that's one of those things that's maybe just kind of like it's in the air or it's in the, Mm um, again, non-question non question. I do
0: think it's in the air. I do think that I do think that it has a particular I do think it's the weather. I do think it's the history of the place, the Barbary Coast, the gold rush, the new, the yeah, I absolutely the freedom uh, at the time and and up until, you know, the late 90s where you could live relatively inexpensively and experiment
2: and uh be in a community and speak with a, with a history. Absolutely. I mean,
0: it's also like a seriousness, whether you take it seriously. I remember at the time thinking about New York and how dour it was and how, when I would see all the bands from there wore black leather and had black dyed hair. And I thought, Oh my God, how boring just, you know, okay, you're cool, whatever. And, and I like that. Don't get me wrong, but it just seemed like there was a kind of cool factor on the East coast. It seemed to me repressed and it also seemed oppressive and it also seemed depressed. And, and this, this freedom, this freedom of expression and spirit, I don't know. I'm sure people could argue or say a lot about, we could talk a lot about that and what that means and why it was that way there in San Francisco, different, different kinds of industry and social economic factors, but it's definitely in the air. It's in the history, it's in the air. Burt Williams met George Walker there, it's in
2: the air.
1: I did want to ask about you know what led you to leave san francisco but i know before you left you had a period where you i guess you could say sort of exited the the proverbial scene but were still doing music and that's when you started working with in some sense working with craig ventresco is that is that accurate
0: yeah yeah that is accurate
1: because i know that or i i gather that that sort of Led to I don't know if you could say a new phase in what you were doing not a phase because that sounds like a something that's temporary but that you sort of recommitted yourself or reoriented yourself I guess you could say
0: yeah that makes sense yeah reoriented I think that makes a lot of sense because a kind of you know major change you think mm, maybe I'm Saturn return I don't know maybe you just just
2: I became overly serious and. Uh, yeah, yeah, I became overly serious and
0: in a way that was retrospectively it's fine. You know, for five years all I listened to was music from 1896 to 1917 or something like that. It it was limited, you know, being that I'd come from something that was so different in my mind where there's there was this
2: openness. And and then I became really Exclusive and and
0: idiosyncratic in a way that was really hard for other people to relate to was like I would go to a party and be like, "Why aren't you listening to to uh, Ada Jones?" Or (laughs) in my mind, it it, it's it was a uh, I took on this intensity of early American music, recorded music, and the importance
2: of it and what it meant. But I really lost a kind of joy for just sound and
0: and all sound and all music. and and um, I'm happy to say that I have <laughs> left the building and and uh, I still have the, this wealth to draw from of knowledge of that music, that era, those songs, which are absolutely brilliant. And now what I do is I take the songs and I rewrite the lyrics, which is much of what performers did at that time anyway, and in a topical way, and perform a cappella with a friend of mine who's an artist who has shows. He has shows kind of big shows like at the Brooklyn Museum or here or there. We just did a performance together or I did a performance at his opening, his name's Duke Riley and he and I, you know, it's, it's, it's not exactly a collaboration. It kind of is. And, and he called it that, which I, which I appreciated, but I kind of channel into what he's doing and I tune in the dial and I write a song and then it sort of explodes in the middle of one of his openings. And that's it. So we've been doing that together since 2009. So while you say a phase, yeah, there are, you know, it's life changes all the time. So, I didn't so mean to was, say that.
1: Phase is not the right word. I used no, that you word didn't say. Tray. No,
0: no, no. And you said that, but I, and you corrected yourself. But I was like, no, 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 that's actually correct. And, um, you know, I mean, in some ways I liked the way I liked the way of orienting because that, that really is what it felt like, but in that orientation, instead of having peripheral vision, it became microscopic and that, that kind of granular study is not something that, that brings me joy because it's so idiosyncratic and it's so exclusive and there's so few people that you can share it with. And um, those people tend to be musicians with a capital M. They're really good at music. And that's not, that's, I'm, I'm not a musician with a capital M. You know, I don't understand theory that way or anything like that. So, so there's a breakdown there where it's a little alienating. And, uh, you know, I prefer music community much more eclectic music community
1: is is Yeah I was going to say it sounded like you could have been describing you know uh, graduate school which is what I did after I I left San Francisco but was that uh in an academic context or was that on your own that you were studying
0: No it's on my own yeah it was mm-hmm. on my own and it was through record collectors and and um yeah it was absolutely record collectors getting getting tapes of seventy eight rare stuff and just listening to them nonstop and studying guitar and ukulele. I mean there's one person who I haven't brought up yet who who is a real gem in San Francisco and that's William Wynette. I mean he's in Oakland but
1: I
2: met him
0: in San Francisco. And, you know, he's the kind of person I can say, oh, hey, Willie, you know, what Joseph Lamb song do you like? And, you know, he was like, oh, Cleopatra. So I learned Cleopatra on guitar and Cleopatra rag and played a little played around with him or like a little strenuous life or something by Joplin. So, you know, there are there are ways to 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 if you get into this, to to be out with people who have a more eclectic view and of music. but. And he's definitely a musician with a capital M. So, but, but Willie, by the way, I, I was working on something with Harry Parch, writing something about Harry Parch and actually using Harry Parch's kind of um, way into this, again, this kind of overall experience of an artwork with this, with this writing I've been doing and letting his, music guide this writing into more, into a kind of poetry or, you know, one hopes I can't really Mm -hmm. be the judge of that, but, but, and I was just talking to Willie about Harry Parch. I mean, this is somebody who knew Harry Parch. This is somebody who knew John Cage, you know, this is, this is, this is like, I don't know. I'm a big big fan of willie why not and a big he's i consider him a friend and i feel really fortunate to know him you know and I, I think as far as san francisco he had and oakland and that whole scene he has he has a a um he's a pillar you know he plays with secret chiefs and stuff like that you right, probably right. you probably i don't know if you interviewed him but i did he way, has, back,
1: way back yeah
0: yeah yeah he's he's um somebody who I'm thinking of when, when we're talking about this kind of like looking in, in more of a studious kind of, or a study kind of way. And I'm not saying the people that I know who are really into that music or at all, like that kind of, they're not academics. They're just, you know, musical geniuses who happen to be really into old music
1: Right. But I mean, it's understandable in the sense that, uh, first of all, what you told me about that echoed what several other people, maybe from different eras that I interviewed, um, would say that basically they, they did find some reorientation, whether it was uh, taking, not mm. taking up, going to painting or, you know, realizing, God, I don't want to be in bands anymore. Or, uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, there were a lot of people getting away from some pretty rough situations with a lot of people dying from drug overdoses and realizing that they had to
0: be you know,
1: re- yeah AIDS. Re- yeah. And, and so, but you had, um, no. Not to over dramatize it, but kind of a, a one one two punch from with the with the heavenly tin stems, and then the, the disappointment of what happened at the end with the Carolina and not being able to go to Japan. And what I gathered was mm. that you were um, kind of I don't know if like you woke up one morning and said I'm done with the scene, TM. But it it did seem like you had a <laughs> a moment where it was kind of like I do need to find something else. And then it, it makes sense that that might have. Mm-hmm had um you know maybe that that phase as you call it was necessary in terms of getting to something else um you know maybe you have to decompress or just you say i don't want to even think about this stuff for a few years i'm going to go in this other direction or pursue this more seriously Mm -hmm. so um i don't know if that characterizes (laughs) i'm going to
0: pursue experimental music more seriously no or pursue pursue
1: ragtime or pursue no uh, for sure for sure
0: yeah. Yeah no it did definitely made this give gave me this seriousness that that it I mean it it i I don't want to get too too in on why that's absurd but it's it's a okay so but learning is not absurd and and understanding history is not and and getting this kind of knowledge was really it was it was a wonderful, wonderful. Um, I'm using this word again, indoctrination into a world that that I hadn't really been introduced to in a, in the kind of seriousness that that would be uh, required of someone to really study that music. Now, was I that serious? I tried to be, just
2: in that i I was. and and um It just, like I said, I was never going to be a musician with a capital
0: M. And so, in that world of playing like roots music and and early early jazz and country hillbilly, et cetera, I can't just pick up a guitar and play along to a song that maybe. I don't really know. So it didn't really work out for me in terms of playing music with other people. And so then it then it became I'm on my own. and and so I had that knowledge and I used that along with this kind of more experimental sort of noise making. I don't make a lot of noise, but I kind of do do some more like bringing back this idea of Spike Jones where things happen that are erratic and create a kind of solo performance. But getting to your thing about, about that time, I had a very specific way of looking at it. I said, I'm never going to perform
2: again. That's it.
0: And it was extreme and it was really painful and it was, something that I felt like was a punishment to other people. I mean, no one really was going to care that much, but in my mind, I thought this is this channeling thing, this thing that's coming and y'all don't like it or you don't want it. Well, fine. You don't get it. And (laughs) it sounds really self-important, but it wasn't about me. It
2: was about the spirit. So I repressed that or I, no, I didn't repress it. I sublimated
0: it into painting, which was something that didn't really, it doesn't, it it worked to a certain degree, but I ended up in graduate school studying painting. And that was hell because I was in the Ivy League studying painting and I
2: had all this other
0: stuff that was much more, relevant to my creativity than painting was than like painting the history of painting. I love it but as a medium it was only one of many things you know and and um and I wasn't a conceptual artist either so it wasn't while I I like conceptual art and I appreciate it, the mind was not the mind was not the key organ. So that that uh, that that I wanted to focus on, or that I was even able to. So painting became okay. I'm going to paint this this stern kind of. That's what I will do, and I did it. But then I got into graduate school and was painting, and it was kind of messy. And so, how things, how you relive these sorts of sorts of of experiences and that kind of repetition. And it was like, oh, I don't have any recognition. There's no it was a little bit like going to Minneapolis and, and being like, oh, I'm I'm alone out here. Like nobody knows me here. I don't get any passes. I'm not getting any into any shows for free. I'm not getting nobody <laughs> wants to collaborate. It was just, it was like uh nobody gives a shit who I am. And and I just I realized at one point that that's, that's I uh, I don't know. You could call it being like a baby or something or being like a human who needs to have a community because for me working in a cre- in creative realms, it's always a conversation. I don't want to have a conversation with myself so much. Right. I really don't. and And that's not, I'm not somebody who's really into like, doing that alone. And, and, um, you know, so unless there's someone outside of myself that it's for, or that I'm communicating with, I I don't have the impetus to make work. And if anybody listens to this and anybody else feels like that, and they are, um, have any insight into that? I would be very curious because uh, uh, most people I know are very self-driven. It doesn't mean I don't have, you know, selfish or ego or any of that. It just means it's just comes from a different place. It's almost like a, you know, as a kid, everything that I made had to be a gift for someone. I never sat around and was like, I'm going to do a drawing. It was like, we're going to make gifts for each other.
2: Right. It, no, it's
0: yeah. This is like, yeah yeah. and I know that there's a whole trajectory there's a whole there's a cultural there's there's something cultural in there that 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 I'm unaware of. and it's who knows where that comes from, genes or any it could be anything
1: right. well, so much of so much of of creativity or art seems to uh, whether it's music or or I don't know much about visual art but I uh, imagine um, you know it there's a delicate balance in terms of a social aspect and, um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then the individual aspect of of drilling down and and bearing down individually and different people it's going to work differently but but the, yeah. the factors that are required for the the social aspect to come together i mean those are almost like you know, those are things to do with the zeitgeist, and that are almost almost yes. magical, and they're very fragile. And I think that yeah, you know, that that era of early '90s San Francisco <laughs> that you were out there was one of those uh, really dense eras in terms of a lot of stuff going on, and um, yeah, like late '70s, early '80s, and, and you know, mid '80s was not quite as um, you know, it was a little bit fallow relative to to those other periods in terms of what I trace. But you know, there were a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of things, but again coming back to kind of maybe the experience of it is it um i imagine you know you almost have to decompress or move on and and, you know those scenes can't sustain themselves you can't have you you know I just trying i try to imagine what it would be like going on tour with with a with a caroliner in in one's 40s or <laughs> something you know or, or yeah you know.
0: it's just yeah. like you can't
1: you can't do that forever Good and then point. so the, right so the, point. and then yeah. the question is like what do you do next and see i didn't even realize that you had gone to uh to graduate school but it's like it's got to be um i don't know if you know, lightning in a bottle. Like you, you I feel like you yeah. You found a, a, a setting that was really um, well suited to your talents and abilities and, and interests. Uh, and I don't know if it's been a struggle since then to, to refine it, but to kind of, again, maybe reorient or, um, but, but do you, do you feel? I'll tell that, you, well, yeah. no,
0: no, you don't find it. You have it, you get it once in your life yeah. and, you know, you, you get it. And, and i've never heard myself say this and and i don't want to be nostalgic sentimental because that's not going to help the situation but y- you know there's other things that happen and there's definitely other things happening and i have to appreciate those and they're very much um they're very much building on something that exper- was experienced then but i think the key is to not the key for me is to not, not bemoan what could have been or what was missing, but there is something that I feel that that I definitely miss, that zeitgeist. I
2: definitely
0: miss it, and I will always miss it. I will always, always, always miss
2: it, and it's not you. I mean, of course, there's probably youth or whatever involved, but yeah, I I think it was um it was a you know the skies parted, the
0: gates opened and, and I was welcomed in. And I I I got in for for a few years and then and then I kind of got kicked out or I kicked myself out or I wore out my welcome, whatever it was, and or the time shifted. And uh it was it it was not something that it can can happen again and it won't happen again. You know, obviously time doesn't, that's not the way, the way these things go, but
1: yeah. getting existential. I mean, if it's any consolation, it just seems like has, <laughs> they, you know, all the different people I've talked to or looked at it. It's just the nature of these things that they don't, yeah. they don't last by definition, yeah. like an, o- like an ocean wave. And then, Oh man yeah bless is uh hard and everything else but but for someone like grux to like to 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 dig your heels in and, and entrench oneself in it it's like i admire it in in a sense but as you told me that yes you put it the first time that that's can be its own trap and so you can't really oh, freeze yeah. it either
0: ah right right yeah yeah you can't yet absolutely and 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 it's you ask yourself like well where where do you go from here and and having that's that's interesting to think about because there is a kind of courage in moving through it and moving on to the next whatever that might be in seeing different artistic processes and and experiences and meeting different people and having making new work which may which may or may not ever be on the level of that. And that
2: that might be hard to take, but I think it's worth the risk. I do. I think it's worth the risk. But but it, it also has to do with your your um situation, your personality, what you what you're what you have access to. And uh how scrappy you are when it comes to creativity. It's, you know, I, I, mean,
0: somebody could say like Caroline or continuing to exist.
2: There's definitely, there's a persistence there. That's, that's certainly um, admirable. I don't know. Yes. I, yeah. I,
0: I don't know. I don't, I don't listen to the current Carolina records. Yeah. I never listen to any of the records. I don't own any of the records. I kind of wish I did, but, but, uh, you know, occasionally I think which records did
2: I record on, <laughs> but, uh, uh, it doesn't, it's, hmm. What do you, yeah, what was your, you were going to
0: say something. I think well, I cut I you off. Know. No, I
1: don't, I don't know. Cause I, I, um, I'm just looking at the, the bio here and realizing I didn't realize, you know, that you had gone to, gone to, to Yale, but just kind of looking at the gestalt of your, or looking at your website, it's interesting because I could see the, the range of different things that you've done and it coheres in a way in that this is, um, you know all stuff that you've done and, and um whether it was anonymously early on or not but um it's it's also kind of a, a journey and i guess i um this is not fair of me to ask these kind of this is your life questions but i guess <laughs> i was curious if you know how much uh, when you think of what you're doing art wise today i could you would, mm-hmm. you had mentioned mm-hmm. for example um when we last talked uh some one one woman shows uh, one that might still be in the works I'm not sure um, about some of your experiences as a teenager but how you know do you th- how do you think of your you know maybe this is I'm asking you to say something pretentious but when you think of your art today, how do you think of it in terms in terms of continuity with your you know what what you were doing back then do you how much do you compartmentalize? you know, then versus now, ver- as opposed to thinking, you know, this is all part of some sort of trajectory, you know, do you, can you see what you're mm-hmm. doing in relation to what you were doing in San Francisco in the nineties, or does it feel like. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. No, I love it. I love. I would, but, but, um, You gave me an invitation to be pretentious. No, <laughs> I, 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 uh, and I'm sure, like I said, I'll comply. It's, it's, it's a it's actually kind of therapy talking to you will thank you i think the answer to your question would
2: be there's no way to separate them and i see from this project that you're doing and my my talking to you
0: and being a part of it is allowing me in some ways to see the connection, but also to close the book on that, which feels really nice because there wasn't a ceremonial, okay, well, I did what I came to do and now it's time for me to get in my air balloon and fly away. It was very sad. It felt unfinished and this feels to me like a way to circle back and maybe reflect and see how these things weren't separate. And while it may have been painful, you know, not completing this that cycle is what kept it sort of as a trauma in, in myself because even though uh we performed another show, like the Heavenly Ten Stems performed another show, that that was that. And then there wasn't like maybe a recording. We could have done recording session or something of those songs. And there were a few that I didn't end up learning that I really wished I would have done.
2: And, you know, just finished that.
0: Had that, did some recordings. Fortunately, I I got to record, God bless Trey, you know, for having me record with him that song. Um, And, James good who records some recorded some things and, but, and also with, with Carolina had um, being able to go to Japan. I think that would have, that could have completed the circle for me personally, but, but uh, I appreciate this, what you're doing it. And I appreciate the attention that you're giving to my experience within these, this, time period because it, you know it could I could easily be whatever not not in your book not talk to and and um that would you know be another kind of feeling of like there's a cycle that hasn't quite been run through that's a little bit of like a chain that's broken And uh, so, yeah, I just want to say that, that this talk is making me experience these feelings that, that I think are helping this creative process that's, that I'm going through now, you know, that, that there is a, there is a um, cohesion that maybe I've been unaware of until this time that I can now, in a way, maybe close, close that. Feeling out inside because it's really something that is is trapped you know it's trapped inside and it 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 is really it's 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 painful because when when you have that kind of like deep connection to spirit and to music and to be invited to to like explore that to the the fullest extent of your being with other people there's no greater joy in the world there isn't
2: I I you know tell me what's better than that dancing maybe you know and and so so I think that that um you know I miss it. I miss I miss being with other musicians because they only make you better. And yeah, I miss it. But it's 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 um
0: it's it's that's that's life. That's life. <laughs> and, and
2: and and uh there's you know there's there's definitely a lot going on creatively
0: in New York and a lot of a lot of things that I've been privy to and I'm really appreciative for and and this is only allowing me to be appreciative for those things now and yeah yeah it's making me think of like what what is that quote about toys or something like childhood toys and da da da. you know, there was very much like you 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 touched on it. like there's very much this kind of living outside of society's expectations and norms, which is maybe much different as a 20 year old as opposed to a 40 year old. you know, sleeping on other people's couches and trying to be normal, you know, and and not being normal and knowing you never will be. And then understanding, oh, you're going to maybe see your parents or older people passing away and thinking, am I going to be in a cardboard box on the side of the road? You know, this is this is the U.S., you know, people in Europe. And I think the riskiness of the U.S. was something that was really gave a lot of wind to work here because you really were without a net and still are. but so much so that i think that that it's it's gotten to to really freak people out i mean young people are really freaked out
1: thanks again to laura allen for doing this interview to learn more about her go to lauraallen.com okay.